Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. The topic of predator control always makes for an interesting discussion among wildlife managers. Dr. Dale's guest today is John Polarski of the Tall Timbers Research Station. There is much to learn about predation management for quail. After all, predation shapes the behavior of quail. Enjoy the conversation as we go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Good morning, Gary. I hope things are going well over in Waco. And I always appreciate your excellence in helping pull together the Dr. Dale and Quail podcast and our friendship over the years. And we've got a good one for you today. Here we are taping in late August. And boy, will we be glad to say goodbye to this endless summer. Uh, certainly, we've uh, most of the state been as hot and dry as we have here in San Angelo. So we're looking forward to some respite come uh, late September and October. We're also the, recording this the week after our su- very successful, wildly successful uh, statewide quail symposium. So uh, if you catch me kind of smiling, I guess I'm in the afterglow of that successful event want to thank all the attendees. We had like 175 show up for the tour in 105 degree heat at the research ranch and then 275 for the meeting there in Abilene. And we want to thank all of our sponsors and attendees for that. I want to talk about the role of predator control and predation management in the management of Bob Whites and blue quail in West Texas. And whenever I approach this subject, I, at the if we're at the Bob White Brigade or Quail Masters and we've got a cadaver in front of us, I always tell the students that the threat of predation shapes every living, breathing moment of a quail's life. And then I'll stop and say the threat of predation. I'm not necessarily saying whack all the predators, but you've got to keep in mind what has shaped that quail over eons anatomically. Look at their crop. Look at their eyes. Look at the camouflage feather pattern. Their behavior why do they flush as a covey? Why do they roost in a roost disc? Predation also shapes the behavior of the quail. That's why they they flush in a covey. That's why they one of the reasons they roost in this tight circle with eyes pointed outward. Their whole behavior is influenced by that threat of predation. And they're not a bold bird. I mean, you, you hear the quail, they're, they're doing this. And they're skittering around underneath the brush and in the weeds and so forth. They're they're a fearful bird, and uh, because everybody's out to get them, as Woody Allen said, you'd be paranoid too if somebody was out to get you. And so that's kind of what uh, the way predation affects the behavior of quail. And then physiologically, their adaptations, their white breast muscle allows for very quick but short flight. They're a strong re-nester. So again, being able to stay afloat in a sea of predation over the years has shaped the bird and the behaviors that we admire in Bob White quail. So I always tell people to appreciate predation and what it's done for us. And quail can hold their own in a fair fight, but I question whether the playing field is level. And we're going to delve off into that some this morning. Uh, We'll be talking about some of the factors that may have influenced uh, the overall abundance of predators on the uh, landscape context. Things like the demise of the fur market, habitat fragmentation, 
Uh, the proliferation of farm ponds. Oh, be careful, Dr. Rollins. Deer feeding, our fetish for deer feeding and what the physiological effect of that is on things like feral hogs and raccoons. And then from the standpoint of uh, raptors, the reduction in the use of organochlorine pesticides. So there's been a lot of things happening over the last 50 years, and many of those have favored the predator at the expense of the quail. So we're going to delve off into some of that uh, controversy today. Our guest today is a special young man that I've uh, been very proud to be involved with. His name is John Polarski. John hails to us from Wisconsin. And I'm going to ask you, John, first of all, thanks for being a guest on the Dr. Dale and Quail podcast this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. John's an outstanding young man. He uh, recently completed his master's. I uh, was fortunate enough to work with him and Dr. Heather Matthews over at uh, Tarleton State University, where John did a great job. And uh, I'm going to ask him to fill in the blanks there. So, John, just starting at the beginning, tell us uh, how you got to Texas and um, what you're doing now. Yeah, well, as you alluded to, I'm not originally from Texas. I'm actually from rural central Wisconsin. Um, you know, and I was really fortunate growing up. My family had some land uh, that I really spent a lot of time hunting deer, turkey, grouse, and especially waterfowl. And it was really that love of waterfowl that brought me to the University of North Dakota. Uh, I went there to get an education, but I went there really also to hunt ducks. Uh, that's what I spent a lot of my time doing. Fell in love with waterfowl, thought that's what I wanted to do uh, professionally, waterfowl research. And so I got involved right away. Um, at the University of North Dakota working with waterfowl. Uh, there's a great advisor there, Dr. Susan Feligi, who started up really an undergraduate research program in collaboration with Ducks Unlimited that got me involved. I was looking primarily in terms of waterfowl studies, uh, nesting ecology of, of duck species in the Prairie Coteau region of central North Dakota, primarily looking at nest attendance patterns and predation. That's really what I was really interested in and, and really loved doing. I did that for three years. And after graduating from the University of North Dakota, I was kind of um, at a crossroads. I could, I had the opportunity to, to either stay and kind of work with waterfowl or maybe do something a little bit different. But I chose to do something completely different. Uh, there was an opportunity down at Tarleton State University working with Dr. Heather Mathewson and yourself, Dr. Rollins on a translocation project uh, with quail. And so I decided to kind of take that leap uh, and move down to Texas and, and study something, you know, completely different in quail. Although I still was a game bird species, which, you know, I love hunting. And so that that passion kind of, I think, fit in well with, with uh, studying quail. And we worked on that translocation project, moving birds from uh, South Texas and Northwest Texas to the Stephenville area on that translocation for three years. Um, did a lot of work, obviously, with tracking birds and monitoring birds, doing a little bit with predator control, uh, which is awesome, a fantastic experience. But after graduating at Tarleton, uh, rolled on with RPQRF, working as a biologist um, for a couple of months and then took a, a job, still working with quail, now in East Texas with tall timber. So. I guess you could consider me to be a converted waterfowl guy. Now I'm I'm working primarily with quail and absolutely love it. Uh, I think the the complexities and challenges with, with quail management of what really kept me around. Um, so really fortunate to be working with such an awesome species. Well, now, as you know, John, I wouldn't say this about every Yankee that I know, but in your case, we welcome you to Texas. We're glad to have you on the team. So uh, it's been a pleasure not only 
working with you on your master's, but watching you continue your professional development. And I also want to tip my cap to you because you've become heavily involved in the Rolling Plains Bob White Brigade. And I know uh, you're going to benefit from that. And the brigade is going to benefit from your involvement and leadership in that. Now, before I go any further, John, uh, again, I know what some of the enticement was for you to, to come to, well, maybe not to come to Texas, but certainly to stay in Texas. And that's because you met one of our fine ladies, one of our Bob White Brigaders. And uh, so tell us about uh, Miss Brogan. And uh, I think y'all have got a big date coming up, maybe before this podcast airs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I met uh, I met Elizabeth at Tarleton State. She was also working on um, a wildlife degree there at Tarleton. And um, yeah, it just was awesome to be able to get to meet her and uh, recently got engaged and have a, a date set for getting married on September, uh, September 26th. So really excited about that and really fortunate to to have met her down here. But yeah, like you mentioned, that's that was also a big reason for me staying down here. So I guess well, you have to be remiss not to mention that. I uh, I often say that I had to get married in 1974, and it was because of my future father-in-law's uh, quail hunting opportunities. And so I I hope uh, I hope you can find great ways and ride the coattails of Elizabeth of Elizabeth's fame and fortune down here. And she is an outstanding young lady, and I wish y'all nothing but the best. And again, this podcast should air on about uh, September 20th. And so uh, kudos to both y'all, and uh, best of luck. I Best of luck on your um, your wedding and uh, future there. Let's talk a little bit about your waterfowl background, John, because uh, I, I think this is quite interesting. Again, uh, now we're going to be contrasting maybe the philosophy of predator management relative to waterfowl from waterfowl migratory game birds to an upland game bird, the bobwhite quail here in Texas. And again, the, the waterfowl again, and you mentioned Dr. Feligi, and I believe her name might come up later as we talk more about predation management and some of the work that she's done and so forth. So uh, it, it's just, um, you know, I always say, is it destiny or just serendipity, some of the training and opportunities that we have. But I feel really good about, again, having you on board down here in Texas and, and watching your continued professional growth. So describe for me, John, if I said, what is the role of predator control in the management of ducks, nesting ducks? How would you argue that? Um, I guess I wouldn't necessarily argue uh, anything. I mean, you know, when we're talking about predator control in general, uh, it's a really complex issue. And I know um, from your experience doing field days and from the field days that I've done, we get asked a lot of really good questions by landowners and land managers. And I often find myself saying, well, it depends when I'm starting to answer some of those questions. And, and that certainly, I think, plays um, a role with the with the predator management topic. Uh, there are some studies out there that say, well, you know, the effects of predator control are muted or non-existent. There are also plenty of studies, um, certainly in the waterfowl world with uh, Al Sargent's work and Marcia Sabata's work uh, in the 80s and 90s, more recently with um, Frank Rohr's work that suggests that predator control can increase hatching rates, at least in waterfowl nests. And I think that's um, you know, pretty similar to what we see also in the quail world. We've got a lot of um, mixed studies, although we do have some really fantastic studies, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, uh, that indicate that that predator there, you know, is a role for predator control in some situations. But a lot of that has to do with um, using it as a supplemental management action after the habitat work has been done. Uh, I think that's a, a really important um, thing to touch on is that 
you're not going to be able to trap your way out of bad habitat. And, uh, you know, predator control can be used successfully as a supplemental management tool. Um, we don't consider that to be our first line of defense. Certainly habitat is that. Um, but I think that they're, you know, depending on the situation, there can be a role uh, with uh, predator control. I like that soundbite you used about, quote, you can't trap your way out of bad habitat, end quote. And uh, I strongly agree with that. And again, we set the baseline for our discussion today uh, that habitat is our leading is our leading defense. That's our first line. Uh, I always think back, I tell some people that I'm the second DR from Hollis, Oklahoma, and the first one being coach Daryl Royal, who won't mean anything to you, John, but uh, as you as you make lines uh, in Texas, uh, you'll find that the University of Texas and the Longhorns runs deep. And if you mention a DR to them, they're going to know Coach Royal very well. And I didn't know him personally, but I grew up in the same little small hometown. And I played football in the same locker room that he did. And there used to be a little note scribbled on the wall there that said, if your team scores, you may win. If the other team scores, you may lose. If the other team never scores, you will never lose. Defense wins ball games. So any discussion of predation management ought to start with the idea that we've got good habitat and that's not the weak link in our chain. But uh, we'll talk more about, again, how to use predator control and when it may be most effective, just like we might if we were talking about supplemental feeding, which is a, uh, a similar practice. Uh, John, if you will, let's, let's begin to list the various predators of quail, and let's specifically talk about here in Texas. And you and I, I'll often get a group of 20 people in the room and say, okay, you start off and they'll, they'll list one. And we can go around sometimes completely around the room, if not twice. So let's just begin to list off uh, some of those major predators of quail. And I'll start, I'll, we'll start with the mammals and I'll say bobcat. <laughs> you say bobcat i think that's a fantastic one uh when we're talking about adult uh predation we do have some studies that have implicated bobcats with nest predation but then i'll retort with you raccoons then okay and raccoons boy we can talk we will talk about them probably the focus of this all right i'll come back at you with gray fox gray fox another uh adult predator quail opossums don't underestimate gray foxes as an egg predator. And you should know from your waterfowl that what's, you know, red foxes are one of, if not the, uh, the most common uh, nest predators up there. And the foxes in, as a whole, red foxes and more commonly gray foxes in Texas are very uh, acute and astute nest predators. Okay, you said the possum. Oh, I'll say the armadillo. Yep, that's another fantastic one. Mm, I might say one that might throw you off a little bit. Maybe a cotton rat. Ah, okay. Or or a wood rat. It's larger cousin. And yes, uh, uh, they can. Uh, and y'all down at Tall Timbers, if you've never searched YouTube for some of the uh, videos that Tall Timbers collected 20 years ago on quail and nest predators, you need to Google that or look at it on YouTube, Tall Timbers Predator Management videos. And you'll see some really uh, fantastic video clips including uh, one of uh, of cotton of a uh, cotton rat attacking a nest and so forth. So, okay, I see it's my time. Well, I'm going to switch over to uh, birds and say crows. Crows, okay. I think uh, when we're going into avian predators, uh, probably the most prevalent one that we talk about is Cooper's hawks. All right. 
not an egg predator, but certainly uh, Jason meets Freddy Krueger in the eyes of a Bob White from a standpoint of adult Bob Whites. Well, I will say Ravens. Ravens, okay. I think of one, uh, a migratory species now with Northern Harriers. I remember uh, in North Central Texas on our study site that we had watching a pair of Northern Harriers work in some of our uh, translocated Bob Whites. There's another one that I think of. And our colleagues in South Texas, I can see them saying, ah, what about those Mexican eagles, those caracaras? <laughs> yeah, potentially. Uh, another one that, you know, I've, I've found uh, probably a, a few too many collars in their nests, unfortunately, during the breeding season uh, from translocated quail and resident quail, but that would be in the nests of red-tailed hawks. Okay, so you can see we could continue to go on with those. Let's talk about the herps just a minute. I'll start off uh, by saying uh, rat snakes. Oh, man, that was the one that I wanted to take because we're dealing <laughs> with that right now in East Texas, uh, dealing with, with rat snakes, not only getting adult birds, but also nests as well. Uh, maybe a little bit more applicable to the rolling plains and the cross timbers ecoregion where we've done some work, but that being the western diamondback. And certainly uh, they are a player, uh, maybe counting for two or three percent of our mortalities annually there at the research ranch. But it puts the thrill in telemetry when all of a sudden you think you're looking for a lost collar and then uh, you step on something and it begins to squish. That ain't a lost <laughs> collar. So it puts the thrill back in finding those uh, if, if they're inside a the belly of a rattlesnake. Uh, well, let me pull one out on you, I guess, there from the southeast. Bullfrogs. Bullfrogs, yep. There, um, there was a really interesting, this was a, a finding at Tall Timbers. They had a, a radio-marked bobwhite chick actually found in a bullfrog. So I thought that was really cool to see. Unfortunate, obviously, for that quail chick, but an interesting finding nonetheless. Um, maybe one more, uh, cottonmouth. That's another one that we don't typically like to see um, eating quail, especially a radio-marked quail. That's one that we don't like to deal with too often. Well, as our listeners can appreciate, we could continue to go back and forth. Uh, we probably listed perhaps half of the predators that have been known to eat bob white quail, their chicks, or their eggs. I was uh, fortunate to work with a um, professor down at the University of Georgia back in uh, 2001, John Carroll, tip of the cap to John. I think he's now at the University of Nebraska. But John and I co-authored a paper called uh, Predators of Bob White and Scale Quail. It was published in the Wildlife Society Bulletin in 2001. And I'll make that available to you as a link in the September Equal newsletter so you can follow up more on that if you choose to. But it basically summarized what we do and don't know about the role of the various predators that are involved, what the role of predation and predation management is as a piece of quail management. So let's... Um, John, I'm going to begin to drill in on some of those major groups of predators that we talked about. Now, as we talk about raptors, Cooper's hawks, the harriers, the red tails, again, our hands are tied as far as what we can do there directly. We have to, ma we have to manage that indirectly via habitat management because all raptors are protected by state and federal laws. And there are some information, there is some information available on our website about how you can seek to manage your habitat and reduce raptor predation. And I know they've done a lot of work with that down at Tall Timbers in, in the southeast as well. The uh, and, I'm, and I'm going to dismiss the snakes. Again, I, I think snakes have been y'all's number one predator, if I'm not mistaken, down there in your study going on in East Texas right now. Am I correct in that? 
Yeah, they've been a, a major player uh, this year, unfortunately, which is, uh, you know, kind of eye-opening for me. Uh, but, yes, they have been been a factor definitely in our mortality that we've seen. And, again, that opens up a whole new can of worms, uh, no pun intended. But uh, we may talk about that as we have some time. But the, the group we really want to deal with and discuss are what some people call the measles carnivores, the measles mammals, the middle-sized predators. So maybe at the top end, I'm talking about a bobcat, and at the lower end, I'm talking about a skunk. Uh, so skunks, raccoons, possums, those are our primary mesocarnivores. carnivores. And I, I want you, I want our listeners to stop and think just a minute. Let's, let's start with raccoons. And I want to ask you the question, what do you think raccoons have done on the property that you either manage or hunt? What do you think the raccoon population has done over the last 40 years? We'll give you a minute to think about that. And most of you, if your hand was the needle on the graph, it'd be going straight up right now. It'd be a, it'd be a tremendous increase. And there are a number of reasons for that. And I, I guess, John, I, first of all, I, I would ask you, uh, when you did your master's work and on the work you're all doing in East Texas, are raccoons one of our primary target species? Yeah, that's, that's one that, um, you know, we certainly target with supplemental predator control. Um, but again, you know, that's, it's supplemental management and we can go into, um, maybe when it'd be justified and, and things of that nature, but we can do a lot from a habitat standpoint, um, to try and reduce those, those coon populations before we get to, to, uh, to direct predator control. Uh, you know, a lot of, I guess the experiences that I talk about are, you know, direct ones that we've seen. You mentioned that, um, you know, Quahati project, the translocation project in North Central Texas, we had radio mark bobwhites on that site. And, you know, as it relates to raccoons, we know they're a major nest predator, but it was just really fascinating to see, you know, where we had our nests that we found, which ones were successful, which ones ended up failing and getting depredated. And it was pretty clear, um, you know, seeing that spatial arrangement of those nests where they were successful and where they failed. Nests that were closer to a lot of dense areas, a lot of dense trees, brown ponds, riparian areas, those nests um, definitely uh, had a harder time and had lower survival rates, although we didn't evaluate it empirically, um, than those nests that were up in those upland areas, good uh, open grasslands. I think a lot of our nest predation um, is probably due to those measles mammals that we talked about, including raccoons. So, you know, just seeing that spatial arrangement, I thought was just fascinating. Um, you know, those nests closer to, to what we consider to be predator habitat uh, seem to have a harder time. And uh, interesting that you mentioned that because back in 2010, as I recall, working with Dr. Susan Cooper uh, with Texas A&M AgriLife Research at the Rolling Plains Quill Research Ranch, we put GPS collars on coyotes, bobcats, and raccoons. And those GPS collars recorded a waypoint every five minutes at night to where we could basically see how those various species of predators worked the nesting habitat of the quail. And this during uh, May and June during the nesting season of the Bob White. And it was very interesting. Uh, one of the neatest studies we've done to look at those tracks, track logs, uh, the waypoints of how those uh, raccoons use the habitat. And it differed whether or not it was a male raccoon or a female raccoon. A female raccoon basically at that time of year always had kittens and those that sow and kittens were restricted to the riparian areas. 
have to use that term loosely in West Texas, but they were restricted to the draws. Whereas the boar raccoons went willy nilly across the uplands. And in our case, they went basically from one curry quail feeder to the next all night long. But what tended to keep those um, female raccoons and those kittens in the draws, we believe, was the presence of coyotes. And the coyotes preying on the, uh, especially the smaller raccoons, the boars uh, being larger seemed to be somewhat immune to coyote predation, but we lost one of them the day before his GPS collar was due to fall off. We found him dead, killed by coyotes about 50 yards from dense brush cover. So you mentioned earlier, John, just how complex this uh, equation is, and it's fascinating as a quail manager and a researcher to, to begin to tease apart what those some of those various relationships are and how those um, can be affected by the habitat and, and again a lot of good work coming out of the southeast uh, as well as what you did uh, i'll bring you back to Quahati and we want to tip a cap to uh steve smith steve and his family um, own and manage the Quahati rancher in erath county and they were the recipients of the lone star land stewardship award for the cross timbers eco region so uh, appreciate the support that steve gave not only your research project but in following up and um, and making that better quail habitat and i guess john i'd ask you for an update that's been what five years since we started that and and are there still quail where we translocated them there in erath county yeah, so we initiated that translocation in 2019, and then uh, we translocated birds there for three years. Um, Steve uh, made the decision to hire a, a full-time ranch manager towards the end of that translocation project, uh, Skylar Hayhurst, and he's done a fantastic job of, of keeping up with, with those birds and not necessarily tracking them, but at least with that from a habitat standpoint um, and continuing managing for those quail. Um, yeah, we do. We There are quail still on the site. Uh, we've been monitoring them uh, every year, and Skylar has kind of taken that up uh, since we, we finished with that translocation. But yeah, the quail have been doing good. Um, hoping with this year, with the early rains that we had, and, and seemingly a fantastic hatch at, at the Rolling Plains Co Research Ranch that we're seeing um, similar results there at Quahati. We don't have radio mark birds there anymore. Um, so we don't know exactly, but we're hoping uh, this upcoming fall we see a nice bounce in our cubby call counts. Well, it's um, it was an interesting study, and I wish them the best there, and hope that we can continue to monitor, and measure some success there uh, in a in a county which is uh, might have been good quail habitat 40 years ago, but over the last 20 years ago, it's basically been relegated to coastal Bermuda grass and dairy farms, and so uh, hold on there, Steve and Quahati, and keep holding the banner high for us there, John. As you worked there on on that study site with this translocation study, what was the role of predator control and, and, and give us some, give us some numbers as far as uh, some of the critters that were removed from that site? Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the predator control there was a, a supplemental management action, but we felt that it would be um, especially necessary there because as you kind of alluded to with Erath County and in that particular site, it is a true Island. Uh, on both sides, on the, the east and west side, it's coastal Bermuda grass, um, dairy farms, and then to the north and south, um, you know, overgrazed rangeland or, you know, rangeland that, that hadn't been burned and been choked out with cedars. So it is an island. It's a 2,200 acre island. So we think in those situations, in those fragments, that, that predator control might even play a, a more important role in, in trying to manage for quail. But over about two and a half years of um, you know, 
direct predator management um, staff at Guwahati had removed um, about 700 critters. Most of those were raccoons, but you know it was more of a comprehensive um, predator control program where bobcats were targeted, possum, skunks, armadillos, fox, coyotes, uh, everything. Um, you know, from a mesomammal standpoint, that they could do, and you know, just noticing where our hot spots were in terms of trap take. It was definitely around ponds. It was definitely around um, riparian areas or areas with a lot of um, dense tree cover, primarily live oak and, and post oak. Uh, and it was also focused, you know, those hot spots were on the edges of the property. So we had a lot of um, influx in terms of predator movements um, coming onto the property from, from adjacent properties. Uh, the other interesting thing, which is kind of in line with some of the other predator studies that have been done, is that we didn't see any kind of reduction in trap take um, over those years of, of predator control, meaning that we didn't seem to be putting a dent into those predators. They just kept filling in. Um, so, you know, that just kind of goes to show that, you know, you're not going to get rid of these predators on the landscape. Certainly, they're just going to keep coming, especially in those uh, isolated properties. Digging a hole in the ocean is one way we describe that. And and again, as a 2,500 acre property, if no one else around you is, is managing the predators, uh, that you'll continue to catch raccoons till the cows come home. Uh, and again, we we implemented this uh, intensive predator control during that translocation study to basically what I call soften the beachhead. You can appreciate uh, within a, in a uh, invasion a landing in world war ii they were going to pound that beachhead with uh, artillery to try to soften it up for the landing and that's what we were trying to do trying to give those quail a chance and i believe we um, we achieved that goal but as john said we really didn't make a dent uh, in the um, specifically the raccoon population and possibly the skunk population so if you're the only one out there you got a major appeal battle but it's a war that can be fought it's a battle that can be fought and I'm going to ask John to drill in on some of those specific techniques that he used. And John, you didn't mention one thing that I suspect was a major point of attraction. You mentioned the farm ponds, you mentioned the neighbor's fence lines, but you didn't mention deer feeders. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's one that, as you kind of talked about earlier, that's uh, really proliferated, certainly in Texas on the landscape. Um, you know, we just kind of, a lot of these ranches that we work with, they've got deer feeders running just about everybody's got a camera on a deer feeder trying to, to look and see what's coming in. I think anybody with that kind of a setup recognizes the amount of uh, measles mammals coming in, particularly raccoons and skunks. Um, but yeah, certainly I think it's played a role in, um, you know, increasing measles mammal populations over the last couple of decades. But, you know, those could be areas uh, that we like to target uh, for predator control if, um, you know, deer feeders are gonna be run year round or certainly during the, the breeding season. I think from a quail standpoint, I wouldn't recommend it. If you can avoid doing it, um, I would, or maybe switch to Milo or something else. Um, but if you're going to be running those deer feeders uh, throughout the year, I, I would certainly target those areas for, for predator control. I'd also be looking at riparian areas. Uh, those are areas that we typically see a lot of foraging activity by our measles mammals that we'd want to target. I also... Um, recommend targeting, you know, culverts along roads, also intersections of roads. We see a lot of movement of these measles mammals along um, roads. Intersections are great places to trap too, but 
Um, again, you know, just trapping feeders on their own or, or anything like that. You know, if you're going to implement a predator control program, it's got to be really intensive. Um, you know, just in terms of specifics, typically what we're trying to shoot for is a trap per 20 acres. So over a large um, area, which is, you know, the most beneficial if you're going to use predator control for quail, um, that can get pretty time consuming, um, can also get pretty expensive. Uh, so if that's something that um, if folks can do and they've got the time and money to do it, you know, typically I recommend doing it depending on the situation. But again, just kind of underscoring that it's got to be really intensive if predator control is going to be implemented. Intensive and sustained. And, and again, we'll get more into that here in just a, a little while as we begin continue to discuss that. John, I want to ask you about uh, some of the methods some of that you used and, and recommend. And again, I'll preface this by saying we're only talking about legal means and methods here, folks. Uh, you may be winking at your buddy across the room. I don't do that. I don't get into that. I don't want to hear about that. So uh, remain ethical, remain legal. Uh, if you're curious about what is legal, and I always encourage you to check with your local Parks and Wildlife Game Warden, because uh, if you're going to be doing this, you're going to be trapping outside the nesting season. Make sure that uh, you're legal. You are in Texas, but you you should always uh, check with your local warden. You cannot possess the furs, some things like that. So just make sure you stay abreast of what the laws are and stay within the limits of the law there. Let's talk about trapping, John. Did you employ, what, what do you recommend? Is, and, and again, I guess, well, no, let me let me back up just a bit. I'm not going to talk about it on a on a method choice per se. <clears throat> I'm going to say raccoons are our target. What do you recommend? I like box traps and dog-proof traps for raccoons. That's that's one that's really easy to run. Um, operating those box traps and dog-proof traps, also known as coon cuffs. I mean, anybody can do. Uh, but those are my my go-to's for that. And typically, I you know, if you're going to be doing an intensive predator control program, obviously it's going to require a lot of traps. Um, so those are pretty cost-effective generally. Um, but also in terms of bait, cost-effective bait, I like using dry cat food. Um, if you want to spice things up a bit, you can use a little fish oil on your sets. Um, but yeah, in terms of just targeting raccoons, that's that's generally what I like: the box traps and dog-proof traps with uh, dry cat food. Uh, just for the sake of our listeners, the phrase dog-proof trap may be very common lingo in some circles, but there may be some here saying, what do you mean a dog-proof trap? So so tell us about what those are. Um, those are a specialized trap um, to target particularly raccoons. Um, raccoons typically use their, their front arms or their front feet to forage. Um, they like reaching their hands into the things. Uh, those dog-proof traps are a trap designed to kind of take uh, advantage of that proclivity of raccoons using their their hands and so raccoons to get trapped in a dog proof trap have to reach their hand into a, a metal cylinder that has a latch in the bottom of it and when they reach in to grab that bait that's in there um, could be corn or like i said dry cat food they grab onto that latch and that springs the trap which cuffs them um, right around the wrist and catches them that way. But you're not gonna be able to catch bobcats in the dog-proof trap, coyotes obviously, or um, fox, or um, you know, a feral dog. They're they're really designed to, to catch raccoons, but you can also catch skunks. I've caught a lot of skunks in dog-proof traps too. So they can be used for both of those. And again, uh, 
in the in the study that you were doing, and I would say in 90% or more of our efforts, our goals, our targets would be raccoons first and skunks second. So um, you mentioned the bait that you preferred using is um, dry cat food. Yep, that's what I like using, but um, there's a ton of different options that you can use. Some people like using sardines, they like using wet cat food, marshmallows, peanut butter, you know, granola bars, anything. Um, it's really easy to catch uh, raccoons and skunks and some of those measles mammals. I just like using dry cat food because it was the cleanest. Um, you know, when you're running 100 plus traps, it's it's just really easy to use and, and also cost effective too. Okay. Is there any need, John, if, if we go into this thinking this is going to be a sustained effort, are, are, are you talking about year round trapping or are you talking about say March one through July one? What, what's your, what's your time period we're talking about there? What are you? Yeah. I, you know, if you can afford to do it and have the time to do it, there's nothing wrong with doing a year round effort um, in Texas. That is some, some States have seasons or fair barrier seasons, So you definitely need to check with your, your local laws and regulations on that. But if you were to target a time period, uh, I think the breeding season is the most impactful. Um, maybe thinking from March to September time period. If we if we look at you know the successful predator control studies that have been done with quail, uh, that's the time period that's been targeted uh, most intensively. That March to September time frame. So I definitely recommend that if you're going to pick out a couple of months to do it. And so at at this we're trapping a deer feeder. Let's say. And our game camera, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but we're using our game camera as a source of intel. And we've got a family of raccoons, of six raccoons here. Uh, talk about pros and cons of, of the box trap versus one or more dog-proof traps. What's the best way to take those animals out in a surgical strike? I would probably employ a combination of both. I don't know if there's necessarily pros and cons. I, I, I feel just you know from personal experience that you can catch or have similar catch rates with with either of those traps. But certainly I think if you've got a, a family of raccoons working on a, a corn feeder or something like that, um, I'd probably wanna have multiple traps set to take advantage of that. Um, I've had plenty of sets where, you know, you put two or three traps, you come back the next day and you've got two or three raccoons. So, um, you know, if you, if you know an area where you've got a lot of raccoons coming into a, a small area, I'd, I'd certainly load it up per se. And I agree with you. And my recommendation is that we want to try to take that family unit out in one fell swoop. So if I've got six or seven traps, I'm okay with that, as opposed to a box trap, cage trap, where I'm taking out one animal every other night kind of thing. And I can't prove this, but uh, in my opinion, Mama Raccoon is going to be the last one, and she's going to be able to basically get educated. And, and a trap-shy critter, whether we're talking about this or a coyote in a leg hole trap, uh, a trap shy critter is uh, very difficult to deal with. So try to take them out in the most efficient and the quickest method available. And that'll typically be a, a combination of both cage traps and and the uh, dog proof traps. John, let me let me ask you when you're using when you're considering bait selection, what are you using for the cage traps? Are you using the dry cat food there too, or, or something different? Yep. Yeah. I just like putting dry cat food in there. Um, if you're trapping during the summer, I've just found that, you know, when you're using like wet cat food or even marshmallows, um, there's just a lot of, I've just found a lot of issues with ants, um, things rotting and becoming rancid. Um, I just feel like that the dry cat food holds up a little bit better. Um, it doesn't stink, you know, do it when I was doing a lot of that trapping, um, 
you know, that was a time that I was dating Elizabeth still. And, you know, I know she appreciated me trying to be as clean as possible, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, but it's difficult um, when you're, when you're running a lot of traps also with, with skunks too, it's almost impossible. So I, I, I I usually just try and be clean and that, that dry cat food is, is what I found to be the best way. And let me suggest to the listeners again, the ants, and if you're in fire ants, the, the fire ants can uh, will really be attracted to things like sardines or a can of wet cat food or whatever, if you're trying to use that during the, the warmer season months, uh, put an egg in there. And that way those uh, ants can't, a chicken egg I'm talking about. So just set that in there as your bait and it'll be attracted to those raccoons and skunks as well. Um, Okay, let's. Uh, so we, we've worked on the raccoons, and again, we appreciate that we're digging a hole in the ocean. We're going to continue to trap raccoons for a long time, kind of thing. But again, we're just trying to provide a window of opportunity for those quail to uh, nest successfully. So let's talk about skunks, John. Uh, again, I suspect you caught as many skunks as raccoons, at least in the early part of, of the predator adventure. Yeah, certainly a lot of them, um, but catching them pretty much the same way that I was catching the raccoons. Uh, I think, you know, for myself, I was generally surprised at how many we were catching uh, in dog-proof traps. Uh, skunks were were readily sticking their paws in there and, and trying to, to scratch out that cat food. But yeah, same exact means and methods um, as the raccoons. And that's kind of the same way for possums as well. Uh, box traps work the best for them. And then also armadillos, you can catch them in, in box traps. So the, that's, you know employing those two for those measles mammals they're they're quite efficient and effective all right now you talked about skunks and yet you uh you've admitted that your girlfriend your fiance wants you to try to stay clean herein lies a dilemma you've got a skunk in a trap what's the best way to dispatch that without getting skunked don't shoot him in the head <laughs> that's what i found out they're gonna spray um but you know for myself i know a lot of people dislike shooting them and then leaving them but um i don't know you know when especially if you're trapping earlier during what i consider to be the skunk rut in february um you want to keep those traps open so it just dispatching them like that um shooting them in the heart or lungs or you know whatever seems to work best and then get them out that way i just you know when you're trapping 15 20 of them at a time it's you're you're gonna smell a little skunky there's just no way around it so bring an extra pair of clothes <laughs> yeah. Um, now, John, I'm assuming uh, I, I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate with you here, but there'd be a lot of people who say, well, if they're in that cage trap, we can just relocate them. We don't have to shoot them. What would be your uh, argument there? Good luck uh, not getting sprayed. Um, that would be my first comment. But yeah, I mean, people think about um, non-lethal means in that um, certainly could try and do it. But I think if you're going to do a predator control program to benefit quail, that's that's something I would just use lethal means of dispatching those animals and and moving on. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna tap you on the wrist just a little bit there because as a wildlife professional, at least I would never recommend relocation of something like a skunk or a raccoon. Uh, there are a lot of issues with that, and uh, just. If you're going to get into a trapping program, just be resolved that this is going to be lethal control and you are going to take care of it and you're going to do it in a in, a, in an ethical manner, uh, which means uh, dispatching that animal as quickly as you can kind of thing. But uh, let's don't talk about relocation kind of thing. Um, any comments on that? Maybe, yep. I'm, maybe I'm just old and set in my ways. No, I, th- I think that's, you know, 
perfectly fine. I mean, that's, I agree with you. Um, you know, with this trapping, you want to be as ethical as possible. That also um, requires folks to check traps regularly, at least every 24 hours. Um, and I think that's all good. I mean, we want to try and be as ethical as possible when, when doing this. So certainly good points. Okay. And, you know, I, I deal with people all the time. We talk about, I mean, we show the 16 raccoons that are deer feeder and they say, I'm going to work on the raccoons. Okay. I said, what are you going to do? Well, I've got one in box traps. I'll set it out this weekend, check it next weekend. Uh -uh. Number one, you're going to catch one raccoon the first night and then that animal's left in there to suffer. If you're going to use trapping, again, approach it in a professional manner to where you're going to take care of the situation and, and do it due diligence uh, in your trapping effort. Um, anything else we need to talk about on the common ones? Well, I, I would say this, John, I talked about I'm not for relocation, but there is a benefit to using box traps, cage traps, and that is that if I catch an unusual skunk, and I'm talking now about a spotted skunk, or a hognose skunk a little further west, I'm I'm not mad at those. It's just the old common stripe skunk that I'm working on. So uh, having some ability to release, uh, and again, you're not going to catch many spotted skunks or hognose skunks, but uh, they're fairly unique, so turn them loose if you catch them. <clears throat> I want to talk about foxes, John. I don't know. Did you catch uh, there? Did the program catch any any foxes there in the Erath County side or, or not? Yep. Yeah, we caught a few foxes, gray foxes. Um, but you know, generally, we also had some cameras up, um, just kind of surveilling our predator population. They they comprised a pretty small percentage of our our population that we think. They're in North Central Texas, Erath County. So we didn't catch too many of them. Let me suggest to you, uh, again, I've tried to learn from people, from professionals, to, from academics, and from guys on the trap line out there over my career. And one of the guys that I used to quail hunt with out here west of San Angelo, he was big into box traps. And he, he built his own. He built a four-foot-long box trap as opposed to the standard three foot long and when i asked him why he said you won't catch a gray fox in a three foot trap or a red fox because their tail is long enough that it catches that that door when it trips and so he recommended a longer trap if your target species was the uh, red or the gray fox and as i pointed out earlier red and gray fox are both very skillful egg predators they are very neat egg predators uh they can't, if you're in an area that has a lot of those, they can be a force to be reckoned with. Now, in the situation we were dealing with there in Erath County, a lot of coyotes and coyotes and gray foxes tend not to associate with one another. The coyotes typically eat the gray foxes. So if you got high coyote numbers, sometimes you have fewer numbers of some of those other predators. We can talk about that as we have time. John, this, well, first of all, let's talk about bobcats. Uh, that's one of the other major, uh, again, not an egg predator per se, although we have photographed them at nest, but uh, an adult, a predator of the adult birds. So what kind of bobcat numbers were encountered over at that Erath site? Yeah, we had quite a few. And if you, you know, look across most of Texas, um, there's, there's quite, <laughs> folks will find there's quite a few bobcats that they'll have on camera. Um, but yeah, we, we, we trapped quite a few of them. Um, that was mainly a combination of, of box traps and snares. 
also leg holds can be really effective on them um but we we just typically didn't run too many of them but i know you're a big fan of the rooster traps um, we utilize those uh, periodically throughout uh the, the study there and, and they seem to be pretty effective too and if you're not familiar with a rooster trap well again this is, typically we're talking about a four foot cage trap with a extension onto the uh, end of it that you place a rooster in there the rooster is secure from anything that would come around there you've got feed and water in there and ideally you'd have one rooster trap at point a and about a half mile to a mile away you'd have another rooster trap and so when those roosters begin to crow in the uh, pre-dawn hours antiphonally one is calling and that stimulates the other bird to call that's the uh, breakfast bell going off for things like bobcats so they can be very easy to use and they can be very effective for uh, trapping bobcats as well. Now, John, y'all had something there at the ERAS site that uh, not everybody has, although it's fairly common, that that being a high fence around that property. So that enabled the use of snares. And do you have an idea about out of, and I think you said 700 critters? Were yep. What percentage of those do you think were taken by snares? Oh, maybe 30%. Um, so it was, I mean, certainly considerable. It wasn't the majority by any means, but um, was certainly effective uh, in being able to utilize. So, And probably much more effective for things like uh, bobcats or coyotes in your case, as opposed to, say, raccoons. Sure. Yep. And uh, so, again, what we're talking about here, folks, is know what your armada of techniques are and how they can complement one another. And John, with that i want to talk about what i call integrated pest management uh, if if you've ever been around the farming ranching scene at least in texas you've gone to a program held by the county agent and uh, you, you wanted some credit hours for your uh, private applicator's license and somewhere you've set the discussion of integrated pest management uh, probably listening about how to do pest reduction and crops like alfalfa or cotton or grain sorghum but that same philosophy can be applied to mesocarnivores and quail management so i mentioned several points uh, one being that there are pests and then there are beneficials we don't want to take out the lady beetles uh, in a crop situation because they're predators of many of our lower insects so use that same philosophy again i'm not uh, what i'm going to tell you now is, is not universally agreed upon but i believe that coyotes are a left-handed ally to quail and as such they basically get a free pass at growing plains quail research ranch because they help suppress the number of other critters that are more efficient at quail especially quail nests things like skunks raccoons snakes the idea of scouting if you've ever been in a cropland situation you've seen these little green plastic uh, pheromone traps around the field and those are to attract things like bull, bull weevils so the IPM agent or the farmer can go out there and monitor what that pest population is doing and they know through their studies that there's a certain level of pests that can be tolerated but if they exceed some threshold that they'll refer to as the action level or the economic threshold then at that point it pays to bring that crop duster in or whatever the technology is to reduce that pest population. They'll be able to grow more grain and make it economic. Think about that same same threshold in terms of uh, predator control for quail. And then they'll stress an integrated approach. 
They'll talk about cultural methods like crop rotations, those kind of things. And we got to keep that same mentality as we talk about predator management or predation management and we discuss quail. I've got a nice um, YouTube webisode called predation and predation management and quail. I encourage you to watch that. It'll go through that in, in more details. And once we get to the um, kind of towards the end of that IPM approach, then we get into an IPT, individual plant treatment, if you're managing mesquite. And we do this all the time. We're on our four wheelers going around and squirting a little bit of herbicide in a very targeted manner on the mesquites that we want to see taken out. Use that same philosophy as it comes to uh, predation management as well. John, I'd like to, now that I got off my soapbox, if you will, <laughs> about, about that, I want to bring up a couple of case studies and we've talked at some length about the Quahati study, but many of the things, and you and I just came from this statewide quail symposium last week. And our last speaker was Dr. Bill Palmer with Tall Timbers Research Station. And I'm going to say most of us here on the Western front are trying to mimic many of the success stories that Dr. Palmer, Clay Sisson, a number of the, of the scientists down there at Tall Timbers have been able to develop over the last 30 years, and shout out to all of them. And again, their uh, use of things like prescribed burning intensively, trapping intensively, supplemental feeding intensively have really changed the paradigm about how quail can be managed and su successfully and sustainably managed there in the Red Hills of uh, Georgia and Florida. So again, shout out to all of them. What are some of the lessons? You've been a student of Tall Timbers and again, working for Tall Timbers now. What would you say are some of the lessons that they've learned that we in Texas ought to be thinking about? Well, I think um, just first, we're really fortunate to have, um, you know, some of the, the research findings that, you know, researchers at Tall Timbers have done, uh, especially in the early 2000s as it relates to, relates to predator control. There was a recent study that came out, um, Palmer et al. 2019, I would encourage folks to, to read it when they can, um, summarizing their, their intensive predator control study that they did in the early 2000s. And it's really the gold standard, I would say, when it comes to predator studies done across any species, especially with quail. Um, it was a, a seven-year study. They had four uh, study sites in the Red Hills. And I guess to just provide some context for those that aren't familiar with the Red Hills of North Florida and South Georgia, these are properties that are managed um, intensively for quail. And it's some of the, the best habitat that you're going to find anywhere in the country uh, for quail. So that, that's, you know, one important part. But it was a, a big predator study. Uh, they trapped nearly 5,000 critters over the course of that study, but they had two of those study sites trapped in a given year, two that weren't. And then midway through the study, they flipped um, which sites were trapped and which ones weren't. So it was a really powerful design. But they found, um, well, I guess, you know, also they, they incorporated a lot of a lot of bobwhite nests and also radiomark birds, which also kind of added to the power of that study. Um, had the largest sample sizes, certainly with radiomark birds and then also nests that they monitored. But what they found generally is, you know, with that intensive predator that control that they did, it resulted in about an 18 percent increase in their fall abundance. Um, they were also monitoring those predators uh, throughout the course of that study. And on those treatment sites, they had an average of about 43% decrease in visitation rates from predators. But you know, one thing with that predator control program that they did that they were having some success with is that it was a comprehensive 
um, predator control program, meaning they weren't just targeting raccoons and they weren't just targeting um, possums. They were targeting all the meso mammals that they were legally allowed to do. So that's one thing for folks to consider is that, you know, if you're going to do that, that predator control program, it needs to be comprehensive. It needs to be very intensive. They're trapping at a trap to 20 acres, just about on large acreage, 30, you know, 3,000 acre properties, 4,000 acre properties. And they're having about, you know, on average, an 18% increase in their fall abundance. So that's, you know, like I mentioned, something to consider is if you want to put that time and energy into it, into trapping after the habitat work has been done, you know, you can expect, you know, modest gains, at least in your, in your fall abundance, uh, potentially. But again, that context is different. The study is done in the Southeast. If we're thinking in, in Texas terms, our predator communities are a lot different. We don't really have great data in Texas um, in terms of, you know, potential benefits to predator control. We don't have any kind of, um, you know, Palmer et al. 2019 studies done in Texas. There have been some work done on predator control. A lot of that has been mixed. Um, but yeah, something to something to consider is that intensive program potentially, you know, up to maybe an 18% increase when the habitat work has been done. Well, and again, tip our caps to all those involved uh, because they've been they've been studying this for a long time, and uh, again have through their demonstrations that it can be successful and how it was successful, have moved the needle. They've changed the paradigm about things like supplemental feeding, prescribed burning, uh, cotton rats, and uh, and predator control. Uh, John, one of the and you and I. I'm sure you've been down there several times, but uh, I had a chance to go down there a couple of years ago with several of you. And their traps, or at least the, the one plantation we were on, their traps had remote sensors on them, their cage traps, that allowed somebody to sit back at the office and say, oh, trap number 47 has been tripped. So if they had 300 traps out, that seemed uh, that seemed like pretty cool technology. Have you, have you had any experience with that? No, I haven't. I haven't used it directly, but it's something that would make uh, trapping intensively a lot easier. Yeah, but essentially, with those box traps, um, they had a, a similar to a, a, a transmitter. But anyways, when that door shut, it notified um, ranch staff back that that trap had been shut. So you know, notified immediately when when an animal was caught. So you know, when plantation managers go and um you know go to go to their plantation in the morning they're able to run through those frequencies of the trap see if it if the trap is flipped and then they know which ones to check so when you're running you know a couple hundred traps it certainly makes your life a lot easier so something folks can do as well and always try to stay abreast of that type of technology and other technologies and, and the technology we've really haven't delved or discussed too much this morning we've mentioned a little bit are game cameras and i mean i started fiddling with game cameras when they first came out in 1993 and I always called it my electronic trap line and I could not wait to go in at that time it was take film out and get it developed now it's uh, taking out an SD card or getting that getting that image to email to you with your cell phone kind of thing so use that technology because when we get back to that IPM philosophy scouting in the quail management world and predation management means that I've got game cameras out and I know when that family of raccoons is hitting deer feeder number 14 and I can move in there swiftly and take those uh, animals out. And so use that kind of technology. It's very affordable and I'm sure most of you have got game cameras lying around and not doing anything right now. Get them out there and deploy them 
and be able to monitor what's going on on the back 40. Yeah, Dr. Rollins, just really quickly at, along those lines of game cameras, that's a really important point. Um, we, we like to use game cameras and scent stations uh, to monitor our predator population through time. Just with some of the work that's been done in the Southeast, um, we typically try and have a predator index of 0.15 or lower. And you might be asking, well, what the heck is a predator index? Um, it's basically how we calculate it is just the number of predators that you have detected on your game cameras divided by the trap nights that you have. So if you had 10 cameras out for 10 nights, that would be 100 trap nights. And you'd want to have generally less than 15 predators uh, detected during that survey. So that's something that, that landowners can do. And I would highly encourage them to do to justify whether predator control is warranted or not. Obviously, a lot of these, these data and, and recommendations were formulated in the Southeast. It might be a little bit different in Texas, but like I said, you know, if your predator index that you do run your game camera survey and you're, you're not seeing a whole lot of predators, it may not justify spending the time to do that predator control. So I think that that's something that, that's, that's a really important point um, for landowners to ponder is whether or not it's even justified doing predator control. If your population's already low, it might not be, be worth the time and that time can be spent uh, on habitat control or, or other things. So just wanted good. to put that out there. Yeah, good point. Uh, we're out of time, John, and we haven't even uh, got around to feral hogs, which uh, were not involved in that study, to my knowledge, in the southeast and a few at, at the Erath County site. But it, that'll be a that'll be a topic for another another uh, podcast. And I've got a young man that many people will know. His name is Barefoot Bob, and I want in I want to invite Barefoot Bob to do the podcast on that. So stay tuned for that one. Uh, we've got a number number of other webisodes on our website, quailresearch.org, on coyotes and quail, quail predator management, managing quail habitat to reduce raptor predation. Several other previous podcasts, especially numbers five, six, and 48, have all dealt with uh, topic similar to today so do your homework read up on uh, what the options are and uh, be able to monitor again not only uh, the various potential predators of quail on your property but also use something like dummy nest and there's a webisode on, on that using dummy nest to quantify whether or not you did any good uh, and i think if you set out 48 dummy nest and then come back in uh, four weeks, you'll be shocked at how few of them probably survived in your particular habitat. But it's a hands-on thing that you can do. Uh, again, there's a webisode on that. John, we really appreciate you being with us today. Again, I'm very proud of, of you and wish you and Elizabeth the best. I know you both very well. And I appreciate uh, the young quail hunters. I guess I should ask you, John, if you're about to get married, do you have any guns you want to sell? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, knew, I knew you'd ask that. Uh, I actually just recently got a new gun. Um, so in addition to, to the ring and the gun, I've had a lot of big expenses over the last year. So the bird dog is next. Um, that's coming, but obviously need to, to tone it back, I guess, on the big purchases for a little bit. Well, again, I wish the best to you and Elizabeth and look forward to working, continue to work with you professionally and uh, appreciate all the work that you've done there. Let me uh, just mention a couple of things as we close out today's podcast. Uh, September is the time to do roadside counts. And so I encourage you to get out there. Roadside counts have proven to be as effective as anything for estimating your quail abundance, at least in West Texas. Get out there and do those. Do them at least three times. I'd be curious to know your results. 
Uh, we'll also be publishing what I call my annual quail forecast in the October eQuail newsletter. So if you've got observations there, if I don't directly reach out to you and ask you for a forecast, uh, you're welcome to uh, contact me at drollins at quailresearch.org. Now we've got two events coming up uh, in October. One of them on October the 6th is a Habitat Appreciation Day on the Rivalin Ranch. Brad Rivalin, just southeast of Asperance, Stonewall County. That's going to be a really fun day, and I really encourage you all to find out more about that one. And then the following Friday, we'll be having a Blue Quail Appreciation Day at the Quail Ranch. Now, not the Rolling Plains Quail Ranch, but the Quail Ranch, which is just east of Crane, Crane County. So looking forward to both of those, and if you're in into those and want more information about those uh, be following us on facebook or email me at drollins at quailresearch.org and with that gary i'm going to turn it back to y'all and we'll look forward to visiting with you again next month thank you so much dr dale and thank you john for all of your insights and experience really good information on a most interesting topic we hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.